What I fight against are these two silencing mechanisms, forced arbitration and NDAs. One third of all Americans sign NDAs on their first day of work. And they're basically signing away their voice for anything that happens to them in the future. They think with an NDA, they think they're signing away, you know, the idea that you can't talk about trade secrets of the company, which of course I agree, you shouldn't be able to walk across the street from Pepsi-Cola and give Coca-Cola the recipe. But these NDAs have become so expansive, but the language is so, it's not direct. It doesn't say, hey, if something bad happens to you, you can't say anything about it. And what happens is five years later, when something bad happens to you and you bring your contract to a lawyer and they tell you you're screwed because five years earlier, you signed something that means that you have absolutely no recourse anymore. And that, I believe, is criminal. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, here's today's question. What does it take to own your voice when everything is on the line and the entire world is watching? On the podcast today, I speak with Gretchen Carlson, New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and internationally recognized trailblazer for women's rights in the workplace. In June of 2016, two years before the beginning of the Me Too movement, Gretchen boldly went public with sexual harassment claims against the then Fox News chairman and CEO Roger Ailes, considered by many to be one of the most powerful men on the planet. Having spent over 30 years as a journalist, Gretchen was one of the most recognized faces on television. Hosting the Saturday edition of The Early Show on CBS News, Fox News, Fox and Friends, and The Real Story with Gretchen Carlson. So what happened to lead to that moment? Now, the NDA she had to sign as part of her settlement has prevented her from ever discussing her experiences at Fox, although her story has since been told in the movie Bombshell, starring Nicole Kidman as Gretchen, and the Showtime miniseries, The Loudest Voice, starring Naomi Watts. Although we can't talk in much depth about what happened prior to that moment, we do know a lot about what happened after that moment. Two weeks after the suit was filed, Roger Ailes was fired from Fox in what became a historic and very unanticipated precedent. Gretchen went on to settle her lawsuit and then co-found Lift Our Voices, a non-profit organization fighting to eradicate forced arbitration, more on that later, and non-disclosure agreements that are keeping toxic workplace issues silent. In this conversation, we explore how she built enough courage to stand up and use her voice and why, and these are her words, it's not like walking into a room and just flipping on a light switch, even if you are a strong person. What Gretchen describes as one of the darkest days of her life, when after finally deciding to speak out about her experiences at Fox, she was told unequivocally by her lawyers that she had no case, all because of a tiny clause in her contract that she and many millions of others didn't know existed. The long night before her decision to sue Roger Ailes hit the global media and something her husband said to her at 2am that night while stood in the kitchen that gave her the strength to face what came next. Why she went on to create Lift Our Voices to end forced arbitration and NDAs, what she has learnt about changing the system and how she has taken those learnings and in just five years gone on to drive one of the largest U.S. labor law changes in the last 100 years. Finally, how it felt to watch her story portrayed on the big screen, not once, but twice, while being legally prevented from ever contributing her own voice. You know, for me, one of the things I see playing out time and time again as 
I have the privilege of holding space for this podcast is the power of the courage transfer. You know, less than two years after Gretchen spoke publicly, allegations against Harvey Weinstein gave birth to the Me Too movement and the world changed. Her decision, the dark nights waiting for the media crucifixion and the career destruction that was inevitably to come, started a ripple effect that then became a tidal wave of women speaking out against sexual assault. And that's the power of using your voice. Even if you're not successful, as Gretchen undoubtedly was, even if your voice breaks and your legs shake and you have no idea how you're going to handle what comes next, somebody is always watching. It might be your colleagues, it might be your team, your industry, your children, potentially the founders of an important movement that is yet to come, that may be years in the making. But I just, I can't think of a better way of describing what influence, what Gretchen's journey, and what this podcast is all about. Now, for those of you who are ready to take your own journey of influence to the next level, don't forget, hop on my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and the seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your own level of influence, your own ability to make a huge impact. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to whistle a tune. On that note, sit back, settle down, stride out, and be ready for the journey of a true trailblazer, Gretchen Carlson. Welcome to the podcast, Gretchen Carlson. So good to have you here. Thank you for having me. I wanted to kick off the way that I usually kick off the podcast, which is if there's one idea that's just having a lot of influence on your thinking right now, and I know that you are in a world of fast-paced ideas at the moment, is there one that's really captured your imagination or your thinking of the way that you're traveling in the world right now? Yeah, I think if I had to come up with one idea, it would be the importance of being able to own your own story and your own voice. And... That is what I hear from people every single day with the issues that I'm working on and trying to get rid of silencing people when bad things happen to them. Um, and so the number one thing people say to me is that they, they wish that they could own their own voice. They're happy if they do own their own voice. And my mission is to make sure that everyone owns their own truth. Um, and, and so many people across the world have had to sign documents that mean that they don't own their own voice. There's, there's something to be said for what kind of power you have when you actually are in control of your own storyline. And for so many people, that's been taken away in their life when something bad has happened to them. They're silenced. And, you know, so my mission is to try and bring that power back to people. There's nothing more powerful than owning your own voice and owning your own story. And I feel like everyone should be able to do that. What does that mean to you? The, to own your own voice. I mean, obviously there's to own it publicly, to be able to speak about what's happened to you, your life, your story, your experiences, but there's also something inside as well that happens when you can do that. There's almost a dignity and, and respect that comes in. What, did, what does it mean to you to own your own voice? Well, ironically, I don't own my own voice uh, because of the non-disclosure agreement that I had to sign with Fox News when I resolved my case six and a half years ago. So I'm actually, you know, the poster child for, for not owning my own voice. And maybe that's why I have so much empathy for the millions of people out there who, who also don't own it. Um, you know, not a lot of research has been done, although at my nonprofit Lift Our Voices, we're embarking on this research, hopefully very soon, about the mental health of people who don't own their own voice. So it's, it's one thing to, lose that sense of dignity and power, it's a whole nother thing to start analyzing how that affects your mental health in not being able to actually voice something out loud that happened to you. You know, if we've learned one thing uh, with mental health over the last few years, or just in general with counseling and helping people, it's all about getting to them to that point where they can share their stories, right? And we've also found out that the only way we fix these issues that are happening to people is to talk about them. 
So if you can't do either of those things, you know, it is extremely detrimental, I think, to the mental health of people who um, have been silenced but don't have the ability to get it off their chest, so to speak. And that's the way that you heal. So I am, you know, I'm the perfect person who understands what it means to not be able to voice my own story. And yet you've done so much incredible work and made so many incredible changes with the voice that you have carved for yourself since everything that happened. I know there's a lot that you can't talk about, um, but going back for a moment, when did you when did you know it was time to speak up publicly, to, to file the lawsuit? Was it a particular moment in time? And you don't have to talk about obviously what happened. Was it a buildup? What happened in the lead up to that? Yeah, I always say that building that kind of courage to do the, the scariest and biggest decision of my life is not something that I just decided the day before. You know, I'd been thinking about this for years, quite honestly. And uh, I always say that, that courage is not like walking into a room and turning on the light. You know, um, it takes a tremendous amount of thought and time to be able to decide to actually make that leap of faith. And so for me, it was my family structure that was, you know, incredibly supportive from my parents to my husband, to my children. I was worried about the impact it would have on my children, especially. And I wanted to make sure that they were going to be okay and be in the right place. But then from a work point of view, what really made the final push was that they fired me from my job. And, um, you know, I hadn't done anything wrong. They, they, they fired me from a career that I had killed myself for, for more than 30 years. And so it was at that point that I decided, well, if I don't do this right now, um, you know, what else? I mean, nothing else is good is going to happen to me, right? Because I've been fired from my job. And number two, I figured if I don't do it, who, who is going to do this? Who actually is going to find enough courage to talk about what's really happening here? And so that's when I jumped. And, um, you know, it's when you do something like this, it's, uh, it's not like there's a safety net underneath you. Uh, it's very much a, a jumping off a cliff by, by yourself. But what I learned is that there actually was this safety net down there. And it was all of these other people that started reaching out to me and telling me that they had similar stories. And that's when I realized that harassment in the workplace was an epidemic because people from all walks of life and professions were reaching out to me and saying that it happened to them in the same way. Um, so they were really my, they really buoyed my spirits when I was in some of the darkest days. And it had a dual effect because not only did I realize it was an epidemic and that they were helping me feel better, actually it had a three-way three effect, it propelled me to then decide that I was going to do this work to try and change the system. And you know, so really what I do is not just for Gretchen Carlson individually, what the work I do now is for all of these people who have been silenced and pushed out of their jobs, never to work again, um, many of whom, most of whom I will never, ever meet. So, um, you know, I'm really doing, doing work for millions of people that um, I'll, never, I'll never come across, but I know that it's having a profound impact. The ripple effect. The ripple effects that we will never know when we when we show up and take action and and use the voice that we are able to have. Um, you had said, you know, going back to the work that you do with Lift Our Voices, you said in one of the interviews that I read that one of the darkest days of your life is when your lawyers told you that you didn't have a case. So you've you've come to this point, you've decided to take action, and then you sit down with your lawyers and they tell you that you don't have a case. Why why was that? At the time, because I know that that propelled a lot of the work that you've done since. Yes, because I had uh, something in my contract at Fox called an arbitration clause. Now, this tends to be, uh, unfortunately, a, an American problem. Um, the other way that companies silence you through non-disclosure agreements is a worldwide problem. But forced arbitration is something that the American legal field has really misused over the last couple of decades. So what arbitration was intended for was 
to settle small business disputes, to unclog the court systems, because we just had too many legal cases in the United States. And for very small disputes, they said, you know, instead we should just send you to an arbiter where you can just go before him and you know say what your side is and the other side says what their side is and then you know you settle it for 300 bucks or something like that the the intent of arbitration was never to adjudicate human rights violations but that is what has happened in the united states over the last 30 to 40 years arbitration clauses have become part of boilerplate contract language and the proof of that is that back in 1991 only 2% of all workplace contracts had arbitration clauses in them. Now, by 2024, 84% of the American people will be under forced arbitration clauses. There has been an explosion of this silencing mechanism. So what does it mean? It means that in the United States, you have a Fifth Amendment right to go to an open jury trial if you bring forward a lawsuit. This shunts that. This says that on your first day of work, when you signed this clause, you gave up that right, even though you have no idea what might happen to you at work because you're just starting. So it's ridiculous that you have to sign something like that, but people don't know what it is, so they just sign. The other thing is you don't get the same um, amount of, of depositions or witnesses in arbitration. The biggest thing is that there are no appeals and the process is secret. So ostensibly when you go to complain that something's happening to you at work, and they see that you have an arbitration clause in your contract, well, they know you do, they basically breathe a sigh of relief because they know nobody's ever going to know about it because you're going to this place called arbitration. The other thing is the company usually picks the arbitrator for you. So what's fair about that? Arbitrators come back for repeat business for the company because they have a lot of cases, but this is your only shot. So the decks really stacked against you from the beginning. And the statistics are horrendous. Only 2% of all cases that can go to arbitration actually do because number one, lawyers won't take these cases because they know you're going to lose. Because of those 2%, only 2.5% of those cases does the claimant win. The, the odds are stacked so against you. And even if you do get some sort of financial reward, it's so much less than you would get in an open court system on average. So it's been this wonderful secret way, if you're on the other side of things, to cover up bad behavior at work and to even stop people from bringing claims forward because why bother? They know they're not going to win and they probably can't even find a lawyer to take their case. So coming full circle, I had one of those clauses, like millions of other people. Even as a highly educated woman, I did not understand what it meant, even though I had been considering my lawsuit for years. And so that's why it was a dark day when my lawyers said to me, you know, you may have a really great case, but you don't really have a great case because you have this arbitration clause, which means nobody's going to ever know what happened to you. So the way that they strategically tried to get around that was to sue my alleged perpetrator the CEO and chairman of Fox News, Roger Ailes, personally, instead of suing the company to try to circumvent that arbitration clause. That's the only way that we were able to make my case public. But if we had not come to a resolution and this had gone through the court system, I probably would have been thrown into secret arbitration and nobody would have ever known what happened as a result of my case. But at least I was able to make my case public. Millions of other people don't have that opportunity. And, and that's why we were sort of fooling the entire world that these kinds of things weren't happening at work anymore. The reason people didn't think they were happening is because they weren't hearing about these cases because they were all going to this secret place. So it's complicated and it's a little wonky, but you know it's really, really important that we educate people on this because they have no idea what they're signing. And as you said, you know, it's your first day at work. You're not thinking about any of the things that might happen. You're not sat there thinking about the worst case scenario. You just want to sign and start this brand new exciting chapter of your life. It's like you're, you're not considering any of that on your first day of work. It's, it's, one of, it's a great time to, to get someone to sign something that completely removes their voice. 
Yeah, and and millions of of people across the world are also signing non-disclosure agreements on their first day of work. So what I fight against are these two silencing mechanisms, forced arbitration and NDAs. One third of all Americans sign NDAs on their first day of work. I mean, tons of people. And they're basically signing away their voice for anything that happens to them in the future. But again, it's their first day of work. So they're signing away their own truth and their own voice for something that might happen to them five years from now. And so this, this, is, this is the system that, that people don't understand that they're signing. They think with an NDA, they think they're signing uh, away you know, the idea that you can't um, talk about trade secrets of the company, which of course I agree, you shouldn't be able to walk across the street from Pepsi-Cola and give Coca-Cola the recipe, right? But, but these NDAs have become so expansive, but the language is so, um, it's, it's not direct. So people, it doesn't say, hey, if something bad happens to you, you can't say anything about it. No, it's very legalized. So you don't understand what you're signing and you think it's only about proprietary information. And what happens is, Five years later, when something bad happens to you and you bring your contract to a lawyer and they tell you you're screwed because five years earlier, you signed something that means that you have absolutely no recourse anymore. And that, I believe, is criminal. You know, people should not be fooled into signing things without understanding it. Also, nobody wants to nobody wants to be the person that refuses to sign an NDA. And in my business, which is consulting and 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 speaking and training, you know, there's a lot of NDAs involved. And you know, you don't want to be the person who refuses to sign an NDA because the the idea is that that sends a message that you know I, I can't I'm kind of scheming here. I can't be trusted. You know, if I'm if I'm not prepared to sign an NDA, then that means that chances are I'm going to shop across the road or I'm going to take these secrets with me. So you, you're in a completely powerless situation right then and there if you refuse to sign it in the first place. What advice or guidance do you give people when forced with first day of work, either arbitration clause or NDA? Well, first of all, on my website, liftourvoices.org, we have language there that companies can put into their contracts that still protects their trade secrets for NDAs but allows people to own their voice if anything bad happens to them. So companies should take a look at that language on my website if they want to proactively you know, be progressive and make these changes. With regard to the employee, what I'm trying to do is educate people about this so that they start asking these questions, similar to questions they ask like, what is my paternity leave at this company? How many vacation days do I get? What are my medical benefits? I want them to also say, do you silence your people if something bad happens to us with NDAs or forced arbitration clauses? Then they won't seem so out of place when they're the only person asking it. Um, but you're right. If you are the only person asking that question now, likely they may go on to the next candidate because they don't want somebody that understands the system, right? The other way that we can combat this is that we can pass laws that forbid companies from being able to put these kinds of clauses in their contracts. And last year, I was successful in championing two such laws in the United States that now make forced arbitration clauses and NDAs illegal for any kind of sexual misconduct claims in the United States at work. That's huge. They were two of the biggest labor law changes here in the United States in the last 100 years. Tell me, um, I hear you have a pen on your desk that you that you look at a lot that came from the signing of that bill with Joe Biden. Yeah, so actually I, I finally uh, got it hung up on my wall. <laughs> so I used to have it right on my desk where I could pick it up and show you here. It's right off to the side here where I got a copy of the law uh, with his signature on it and then a photo from last March when I was at the White House with him and so many other survivors and the coalition of lawmakers that supported the bill. And then I put the pen right in the middle. So it's, it's behind a framed glass structure now. Uh, but, but after um, I introduced him, I had the opportunity to speak about my mission. And uh, the vice president was there. And then President Joe Biden, they both spoke. And then uh, he went over to the desk. He signed it into law and handed me the pen. And, uh, you know, that's 
definitely one of the best days of my life because I I know the impact that it um, I know the impact that it that it will have. And you know, it, it, as I said that day, it really took a bad experience, and uh, I was able to turn it into a positive situation, which is going to help so many people. And trust me, when I first filed my lawsuit, I never, ever envisioned that this would be part of my life uh, just six and a half years later. And I'm just thinking about that journey, that arc from, you know, as you said, the darkest of days to, you know, watching that bill be signed, being handed the pen, able to take that pen home and know that you had pushed through, you know, the biggest labor law change for the last hundred years. You know, that's in terms of not feeling like, you know, you got to fully own your voice, that shift, like the, the impact your voice has had has been exponential, you know, both in America but also the ripple effects across the globe. Um, I just want to go back in time for a second because you said one of the biggest things that you had to do was prep your family for what was coming next. And I was just thinking about that as um, a mother and a, and a partner and a daughter. How, how do you prep your family for that kind of journey? Because you more than anyone knows the media and you knew what was coming next once your lawsuit went, went public. How did you prep your family? Well, I, you know, the rule of being a journalist is you're never supposed to become the news. So, um, that was an uncomfortable feeling for me because you're supposed to report the news, not become it. But I knew that it was going to be a huge story. Um, I, I basically, you know, told my children the, the night before that uh, mom had been fired from her job and that I was going to do something about it. And the first thing that came out of my then 11-year-old son's mouth was, what's going to happen to our babysitter? <laughs> because he was worried that she wouldn't still be, you know, around. And I said, oh, let's not worry about her. But what about mom? But anyway, um, you know, they, they, I don't think they fully comprehended what I was telling them at that point in time. The interesting thing is that we were supposed to be going on a vacation to California during that time. So I told my husband to still take the kids. So I was actually by myself, which was doubly hard then. But it was important that I be here physically because I didn't want to make it look like I was running away from anything, that I was standing proud and I was, you know, going to face the music, whatever that was going to be. The other thing is that um, my parents, you know, have been a very central part of my life. I'm still blessed to have them in my life. And no matter how old you get, you always want to get the advice and, and praise from your family members, especially your parents. And it took them a long time to get to a place where they could actually say that they agreed that I had to move forward with the lawsuit. I come from a state in the U.S. called Minnesota, which is like known for all their nice people. And people don't really file lawsuits there. <laughs> and so my parents were, were very opposed to that at first. But they, um, they had a very tearful conversation with me a few months before I did it. And they finally had come to the, to the agreement that I had to do it. And that was another, you know, big reason why I decided to do what I did. And then just with regard to my husband, you know, it's, it's not fun in any relationship to have to come home and tell your partner what's happening to you at work when it's harassment. But, um, you know, he, he understood that I finally had to do what I had to do. And, and I had his support as well. I read something, um, that you had said in, in an interview and you said the night before it was due to go public the next morning, it was about 2 a.m. You were in the kitchen with your husband and it was something beautiful that he said to you. He turned around to you and he said, they really underestimated you. And I just thought, what an incredible, what an incredible thing for him to have said. Did it feel that way? Did you, were you stood there feeling like they've really underestimated me? You know, did, did it feel that way in you or were you kind of looking back at him going, Actually, I may have bitten off more than I can chew here. I don't feel that way. How did you feel at 2 a.m. the night before? So I had been underestimated in my life before. So when he said that, I think he also, he knew that. Uh, and, and he also knew that, you know, I always 
have my ducks in a row before I do a thing. And he, he knew that I would never go through with something like this unless I had, you know, um, I have to be careful what I say here, but, um, you know, he just, he just knew that I would be incredibly prepared before I would do something this monumental. And, you know, what I mean about being underestimated in the past was I come from, as I said, a, a, a small town in a northern state, um, which some people, you know, think is rural and maybe somehow you don't become gutsy in that state. I don't really understand why, but I'm also petite, you know, and I think people had this impression that I'm just a, some sweet little girl and I have blonde hair and... So I, I had felt this before in my life where somehow people didn't think that those things added up to being a fierce, strong woman, which I truly am at the core. And my husband knew that. So what he was saying that night was, even they, after working with you for 11 years, didn't understand you to the full extent and that was actually a, a huge compliment to me, as scared as I was, because, you know, I was hours away from, from doing this and he couldn't have said anything better to me. So the next day, the, the story breaks and, you know, I know that you had quite a long wait to find out to what would have felt like a long wait to, to wait for a response. Um, can you talk a little bit about what happened during that day, obviously as much as you're able to talk about? Yeah, so I went to one of my lawyer's houses um, and there was a group of us together, the team of lawyers, and the um, lawsuit was filed in the courts at, at 9 a.m. and we just waited. We waited to see if anyone was going to find it. And by 11 a.m., I wasn't feeling so well because I, you know, it was very, my stomach wasn't feeling well at all. Um, and by 11 a.m., my phone started ringing and it was reporters. And, uh, you know, then my lawyer sort of took over. And I would say within the next hour, it was on national news on the television. And so we just sat down and started watching the coverage. And Mainly, my lawyers sat on the phone for hours and hours and hours talking to reporters. In the United States, this was a huge national story. And, um, you know, Roger Ailes was one of the most powerful men in the world, but certainly in, in media in, in the United States. And so I think there was a tremendous amount of disbelief that somebody would actually do this. Um, and then what, what really the first sort of messaging that we got was that at 6 p.m. that night, Fox finally put out a statement, but it came from the parent company, which was very interesting. It came from the Murdoch sons, and it said that they were starting an investigation, and we were very surprised by that. Then 15 minutes later, Roger Ailes put out his statement saying that he denied everything and that... I had been fired because my ratings were bad and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But that signaled to us that the parent company was in charge and they wanted their statement out first and his came second. So it said to us that maybe there was a glimmer of hope that they weren't going to just brush this off, that they actually were going to take it seriously. And, um, you know, so that that was encouraging. I think it's important for anyone that's listening also for context. You know, this is, two, I think it's two years before Me Too. You know, the, there's very little precedence there. So what were you warned might happen after this? Because you would have, I'm, I'm sure you would have been warned. I'm sure you would be anticipating a certain level of behavior. What were you waiting for? Yeah, the number one thing my lawyer said to me was that you're going to be maligned. You know, people will call you a liar and come out against you. And sure enough, you know, Fox was a media machine. I mean, the very first night they, they went directly to their female TV hosts who were lawyers and had them disparage me and say that I was a liar. And 
you know, that was, I knew that was going to be their strategy because they, they wanted to show that, that women who understood the law didn't think that I was saying anything that was true. Um, and every night they rolled out another person who was very popular and would, you know, say that they were siding with him. Um, so that was, that was hard to take. You know, look, I, I also had incorporated um, social media crisis, social media people as part of my team so that they could help. They had a hashtag that went viral that said hashtag stand with Gretchen. So it really started this other campaign that was going up against what the Fox machine was saying. And that was wonderfully important to me because it, I would read a lot of bad messages, but then I would also see all of this support and that was, you know, that, that was really heartfelt for me because I realized that so many people were on my side and were wishing me well. And then a lot of female, um, a lot of high up females within Fox started to come forward as well. And so their stories started coming out. How did that feel when that started to happen? Were you anticipating that? Never. You know, I, I think that was a product of the investigation. So you know, at first they started the investigation inside the Fox building, but they weren't really getting any takers. And I can't really expand on why I know that they weren't, but um, they then moved the investigation off property. And it's my understanding that, you know, many more women decided to come forward. I had some of them tell me that they only told 10% of the truth, but it was enough. And, you know, they were all petrified um, for obvious reasons. They were still working there. So, you know, within, within two weeks, Roger Ailes was fired. And um, that was an incredibly swift reaction that I never, ever thought would happen. I mean, my lawyers told me from the beginning, they're going to protect him. Nothing's going to happen to him. And, you know, we'll just do our best to make sure that you end up whole in some way. I thought I was going to be crying for the rest of my life because I'd been fired from my job. And then it, you know, it started just changing pretty soon after. And then when I started going out in the public, people were congratulating me and they were telling me their own stories. And they, they actually gave me hope that maybe life would be okay. And, um, so it, it all happened very quickly. A lot of it is a blur, but uh, I'm thankful for the way it turned out. And you had said that that day, the day that he was fired, you had one of the first extensive conversations with your dad. Since the beginnings conversations when you were first considering it, what did, what did he say to you? It was really tough for my dad to talk to me through all of this because, as you can imagine, no father really wants to hear all the details of horrible things happening to his daughter at work. So, you know, my mom has always been tougher. <laughs> and so I would tell her everything and she didn't have a problem with that. But I think once my father knew that what I had done had actually had a huge result and that it looked like I was going to maybe come out of this okay, he, he was then, um, you know, he, had, he could pull his emotions enough together to be able to have a conversation. And it was very, very, very emotional. You know, he just said to me, you did it. You did it. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I think it, to some extent, I've even surprised my parents with some of the things that have happened, even though they've known me my whole life. I mean, I'm just thinking more into the, into the future after that day, where when I started working on passing laws, I remember my dad saying to my mom, I don't think she's going to be able to do this. And, uh, you know, then after it happened, I reminded him of that. And of course, they were incredibly proud. Um, but I think to a certain extent, I've even surprised people that have known me my whole life. I love the fact that your mom told you that, that, she, that she, she told you what he had said. Yeah, my mom doesn't really have a filter. So, um, but, but she's the one that taught me all my drive and goal setting in life, um, you know, and determination. So I guess I take after her. You had also said that, you know, you had witnessed your courage transfer to your children over the last few years, you know, while we're talking about that parental dynamic, that parental relationship. 
how have you seen that play out for them? Because it's, it's, you know, it's hard with teenagers. You're not quite sure what they're watching, what they're not watching, how they're going to internalize it. How have you seen that transfer? Yeah. I mean, keep in mind they were in middle school at the time and that's tough enough with just trying to fit in and especially with social media now. And I didn't want them to be made fun of in any way, but I did see it. I saw the courage transfer to them pretty quickly. Uh, My daughter that fall went back to school and she had been having some trouble with some kids that were bullying her basically. And she had never summoned the courage to be able to say anything to them. But she came home a couple of weeks into the school year and she said, mom, she said, I finally told this one that and that one this. And she said, mom, I found the courage to do it because I saw you do it. And that was just, you know, something I will never, ever forget. And I've watched her now become a young adult who is just, you know, so um, comfortable in her skin and stands up for herself and speaks up and raises her hand and sits in the front row and all the things that I try to, to implore that women should do. Um, I've, I watch her, I watch her do that. And so I think it's, um, I think it's turned out as best as possible. And with my son, you know, boys are such an essential part of this equation because they form their opinions about girls and women very early on in their life. And, you know, I, I think when I filed my case, it was sort of a sweet spot for my son because he was just coming into that puberty age. And he saw me do a TV show one night where we were talking about the horrible statistics of how often a woman in the United States is assaulted or harassed. And it's once every 73 seconds. And when I came home, he was waiting for me and he said, mom, he said, is that really true? What you said on TV that, you know, once every 73 seconds that happens to women in our country, mom. And I said, I'm so sorry to tell you that that is is true. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, Mom, as a young man, I want to help fix that. And that just was like the light bulbs went off in my head. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like if, if I've done nothing else in life through this process, those two examples of how this has impacted my children are beautiful and wonderful and things that they will never forget. And I think it's really shaped their lives in a positive way. In fact, my son wrote about his experience of living through what happened to me as his main college essay this year um, to, to get entry into college. And I was so proud of him that that was his idea. And, um, you know, he wrote about how tough it was as, as a boy and as a man to have something like that happen to your mom. But um, yeah, I was, so, I was so proud of him in his own words about how it impacted him and how he feels so much more aware now of things that happen to women. And, you know, nobody's perfect, but I, I hope that my son will be a leader in this space with his peers and when he gets into the workplace. You know, but back to my thought of getting to our boys, it's just crucial that we get to boys early on so that they learn how to respect women um, from from that point. It's almost too late when you try and change them when they're 40 or 50. So, um, you know, that's a huge lesson that I've learned in this process is how important it is to have boys and men be part of the solution. There's this beautiful story you tell. I mean, your your story was turned into the feature film Bombshell with Nicole Kidman, Showtime series The Loudest Voice with Naomi Watts. And I know that, you know, it would have been incredibly frustrating for you to not be able to use your voice because of the NDA, not be able to use your voice in that process to contribute or to comment. But there's this beautiful story about when you took your kids to see one of those for the very first time. Yeah, I wasn't going to go to the movie Bombshell because I could not have anything to do with it because, as you say, because of my NDA. And I actually had seen some of the scripts um, and I just you know, I was, I just didn't know how it was going to all turn out. And that's about all I can say. Um, in fact, because of my NDA, I can't even tell you if the portrayal of me is accurate or um, if the portrayal of other characters is accurate. I mean, I would love to be able to say what I thought about all of it. But my parents called me and they had gone to see it. 
And they said, you know, I think you should really take the kids. I think it would be important for them to see it. And they said, you know, we really feel like you came across, you know, well in this, even though they know the truth too. And so um, it was over Christmas break and uh, I said to the kids, okay, we're going to go to the movie theater, but we have to go incognito because I don't want anyone to know that I'm going to watch this movie that's about me. And so I put on a hat that said, women rule. And the kids said, mom, you can't wear that. Everyone's going to know it's you. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't think so. But anyway, so I put on a, a raincoat and put the hat on. And I said to them, now, when we go in, you know, I think there's characters that are going to play you too. And I don't want to hear a peep out of you because I don't want to call any attention to the fact that we're in the theater. <laughs> And so, of course, the minute their characters came on the screen, they said out loud, oh, that doesn't look like me at all. Oh, that doesn't look like me. And I'm like, guys, I thought we weren't going to say anything. So luckily, I was sinking down into my chair. And luckily, uh, we went out the back after the movie. And I don't think anyone had any idea that it was them. But they didn't live up to their end of the bargain. But, you know, in, in, in essence, I do want to say that I even though I couldn't participate in the movie at all. You know, people say to me all the time, oh, I loved your movie. And I'm like, okay, it wasn't my movie. Uh, my movie would be different. But I do think that the movie was positive because I think it helped a lot of people. And I also feel like Hollywood would have never made a movie about sexual harassment in the workplace five years earlier, ever. Nobody cared about it. It was going on everywhere, but nobody wanted to talk about it. So I think that the fact also, the third thing that, that actresses of that caliber of Nicole Kidman and Naomi Watts, the fact that they wanted to play my character was huge because it showed that they felt that it was an important cultural moment. And um, so for those reasons, uh, and I've heard from so many people who have seen the movie or The Loudest Voice, which was the miniseries, and they have said that it helped them. And so... You know, I've tried to rise above the aspect of not being able to participate or comment on it to understand that in the big picture, no pun intended, it is helping so many other people. I'd love to ask, I mean, you're now, you know, you're at the forefront of an international movement when it comes to helping people lift their voices, helping people own their voices, or at very least not have their voices taken away. What's the... What's the biggest learning that you've had about that process? Because I know that, you know, these things, they don't happen overnight when we're at the level of changing laws. It takes a long time. It takes different set of skills. What's the biggest thing that you've learned walking that road? That it's really incredibly difficult to pass laws. Um, it's very easy to introduce laws and bills and legislation. In fact, if you ask, um, politicians in our country, how many bills have you introduced? They'll proudly tell you, you know, hundreds or dozens. But then if you ask them, how many have you actually passed? That could be zero. And it's because it's really, really difficult to go from start to finish because there are so many um, different levels that you have to get through. It has to be introduced and then it has to get co-sponsors and then it has to get out of committee and then it has to pass in our Senate and then it has to pass in our House and then the president has to sign it. And especially when you factor in that we live in one of the most hyper-political times of our generation in the United States. The idea that we were able to bring both sides, both factions, who don't agree on anything, the idea that we were able to bring them together on these two bills to say, yes, as a nation, we're going to do something good to protect women and men in the workplace was, you know, a huge accomplishment. But I'm not going to lie to you and say it was easy. I mean, the, the first bill passing into law was a five-year slog. And we had a lot of pitfalls. In the beginning, when I first introduced it, it didn't get a lot of traction when, when President Trump was president. Um, and then we reintroduced it after Joe Biden became president. And I will say that the, there was also a tonal shift among, among members of our Congress, especially on the Republican side, they had been hesitant to support it. 
but a lot of Republicans who voted against it in the first round voted for it in the second round because I think they realized that this movement is not going away. And I would say to them, the very first thing I'd say when I would have a meeting with them is, raise your hand if you think it's a good idea to silence women in the workplace when bad things happen to them. And nobody would raise their hand. And that would be how I would start the conversation. And basically, they, they, many of them came to the conclusion that this was the right thing to do. So, you know, I have a lot of experience now in trying to bring both sides together. And actually, the strategy proved to be a good one because in a very short period of time after passing the first bill, we were able to get the second bill on NDAs right into the system and right back to the same people who had supported me on the first one. And so that one went through the whole system and was signed into law in, in a matter of eight months. You know, that was just the one of the fastest bills, I think, that has ever been signed that isn't an emergency. So, you know, we're already working now on another expansion of the first arbitration law, because as an organization at Lift Our Voices, my nonprofit, we believe in getting rid of these silencing mechanisms, not just for sexual misconduct, but for all forms of discrimination in the workplace. So that would be gender, race, age, disability, LGBTQ+, religious um, discrimination. We believe that none of those human rights violations should go into secrecy. So we are now in the process of getting both sides together to try to expand the arbitration law to include another protected class. And we're probably going to have to do it one at a time, but I'm willing to, to wait it out um, as long as we can eventually get them all done. Gretchen, thank you so much for your commitment. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for your vision and for making the time today. It's been a joy and a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you so much. And if people want to learn more about my work, they can go to liftourvoices.org or gretchencarlson.com. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.